The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Have you noticed that no matter how hard you try to release attachments, heal traumas, and change your life, you still feel as if you don't belong? There is a reason and a solution for this. Join award-winning actor, comedian, and best-selling author Kyle Cease and learn how to immerse yourself in a new way of being at From Lonely to Free, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Welcome to Mental Health, Hope and Recovery. I'm Helen Sneed. And I'm Valerie Milburn. We both have fought and overcome severe chronic mental illnesses. Our podcast offers a unique approach to mental health conditions. We use practical skills and inspirational stories of recovery. Together, Helen and I represent several decades of struggle which makes us uniquely qualified to talk about many aspects of psychiatric diagnoses and treatment. Our knowledge is up close and personal. And as we travel together in this podcast, we will delve into subjects such as depression and anxiety, personality disorders, eating and substance use disorders, and dual diagnoses. We'll discuss the tough topics such as self-harm and suicide. Other segments will examine the impact of the pandemic and economic downturn. We're action-oriented. We focus on treatment options, coping skills, goal-setting, relationships, and mindfulness. We hope to support you into recovery or support you as you support others. But we are not a substitute for qualified counseling or any other mental health resources. Helen and I are your peers. We're not doctors, therapists, or social workers. We're not professionals, but we are experts. We are experts through our own lived experience with multiple mental health diagnoses and symptoms. Please join us on our journey. We live in recovery. So can you. Episode four, the therapeutic relationship. Of all the relationships in the journey to recovery, We've chosen the therapeutic first. It's the bedrock of hope and recovery for so many. Just two people alone in a room, a place where real intimacy is a sacred experience, as John Donahue said it. When I think of my own therapy, there seem to be two wildly conflicting goals, to tell the truth about myself and to avoid the shame and pain of doing so. I needed the right professional to guide me through my doubts and despair and to fan my often flickering hope. D.W. Winnicott said it brilliantly. It is a joy to be hidden and a disaster to not be found. Mm. I needed to be found. I could no longer survive in hiding. So I searched for a therapist with the empathy and understanding to help me find myself. And I've been in individual therapy for 40 years. It's way more than half my life. But today is a first. The first opportunity to talk with a psychiatrist and his patient of 28 years. 
This will be a special, intimate episode. So let's begin. Valerie, tell us about our guest today. With pleasure. Our episode today is just beyond special for me because our guest is someone who has been the driving force in my recovery, Dr. Trey Allier. He has been my psychiatrist since 1993. During our 28 years of working together, we have navigated therapy and medications through the buildup to my psychiatric breakdown, through my five-year crisis, and now we've journeyed the 21 years of my recovery together. I would not have the life I have today without his consistent medical and therapeutic care, his extraordinary compassion, insight, and support. In the darkest moments, I had the faith and the trust to follow his lead. Throughout it all, because of his wonderful sense of humor, we've had the gift of laughter. And now I'm going to give you his bio. Dr. Allier is a fellow alumni of the University of Texas, Hook'em Horns. He went to medical school at the renowned Baylor College of Medicine in Houston and did a psychiatric residency at the University of Denver Health Science Center. He started his practice, his private practice, in Boulder, Colorado in 1983 and has been in private practice in Austin, Texas since 1986. Welcome, Dr. Allier. Thank you for joining us. And I do want to uh, let everyone know that we're going to call you Trey because I've known you for so long. That's what I call you. So, again, thanks for being here. Thank you very much, Valerie. And thank you, Helen, as well. Um, I'm very touched to have been invited to join y'all's podcast. And um, Valerie has certainly shared this experience of the podcast as well as all the other efforts she's put forth. Uh, in the interest of um, supporting proper care for patients with mental illness. Um, and uh, it's quite a special thing. So thank you, Valerie. Um, I'm happy to be here. Well, as we head into our discussion, I do have to admit that I'm a bit nervous because this is quite a different setting for the two of us. Um, I... I'm just so excited. I, I just kind of don't even know where to begin. But we do have uh, a first area we want to talk about. And that's uh, so we want to talk first about if someone is looking for a psychiatrist or therapist for the first time. I know our listeners are, are going to be very interested in this. How for the, if you're looking for a therapist or psychiatrist for the first time, how do you evaluate the relationship to find the right fit? Well, it's a great question. And, you know, there's more than one answer. I think um, in our work together over the last 28 years, really remarkable. I mean, we've kind of grown up together over the yes. course of time um, that, you know, we've enjoyed the opportunity to have that kind of consistency because, um, you know, I feel uh, so grateful and appreciative of the opportunity that I've had to take care of people like you, Valerie, and many other patients. And as I think about it, you know, at this juncture, um, I've been practicing psychiatry for 38 years, and um, I enjoy the privilege of taking care of many, many of my patients for between. 20 and 30 years. And so, you know, that 
that has allowed the development of these long-term trusting relationships that you know are so special and where i believe that that's the basis of really um significant lasting change and healing comes from in terms of evaluating that that initial fit um i think it's so important for a patient or client entering into a therapy relationship to feel empowered and to to know that they are hiring me i'm working for them and that i want them I, I emphasize that a lot with folks um, and that it maybe feels a little bit different than a doctor patient relationship in another setting where, you know, there's not quite a level playing field so much. Um, but I, I think in part what you're saying is that I want to empower a patient to be able to say, no, you're not the right doctor for me, you know, and to, to know that that is uh, a decision that that lies in their hands, um, and uh, I guess there's a lot of subjectives to that about whether a person feels an initial sense of connection or trust. I don't know. Um, not quite sure how to how to speak to those particulars if that's part of what you're asking well you mentioned uh, trust and i think that's really one particular um that leads to talking about uh how can someone participate fully in their therapy and the thing about trust is what i think we should focus on and i, and I have a story about that that uh i think you'll remember about how important trust is that'll uh um well it's just you and I were about a year and a half into our uh, work together when I hit a wall for the first time and started into my crisis. And we had decided uh, you had uh, and I had agreed that I needed to go in, into the hospital and you were helping me decide. And we had chosen a hospital that focused on substance use disorder. And there was an area of my life that I had yet to share with you because there was so much shame surrounding it and so much fear of opening the wounds. But somehow instinctively, I knew that a hospital based on substance use uh, treatment was not the right place for me. And because I had the trust at that point, I was able to let the, that area of my life uh, tumble out. And you made the decision with me that I needed to go to a trauma hospital. And it was just a game changer. And that was based on trust. And so I think um, talking about how someone can participate fully and find the right fit, like you said, is is based on trust. Right. Well, that's, you know, I do have um, a recall of that time. And I think that you speak to something that several things that are really important. And one of the things I've been thinking about anticipating our talk today is something that one of my supervisors said to me uh, or said to us in our class in, in Denver when we were residents. He said, well, you will learn from us and you will learn from literature and you will learn from conferences and trainings, but you will learn the most from your patients. And um, that's something that I've always taken to heart, and I think it illustrates that what you're describing in that vignette 
is a good illustration of that because you and I were, were really working together at that point to identify what you needed and that, you know, I made an assumption that substance abuse treatment, because maybe that was the leading edge of what you were wrestling with, um, uh, was the direction to go. But through that really, you know, hopefully respectful and humble dialogue that we had, um, you helped me see that we needed to shift in a different direction. And um, by your courage, and and capacity to be honest um and i think it speaks to something you said earlier helen about how difficult it is to to be able to open up in a therapy relationship it really was a game changer you know in terms of shifting in that direction and you know i would have to say i guess what you know that would have been uh what, 95 or 1995 or thereabouts. Um, and um, it's one of the things that value, you know, honestly, you've really paved the way for my, you know, growing and continuing to grow understanding of the impact of trauma. And, you know, some of those things that you talked about and, and that you shared with me way back then really open my eyes to something that is so often kept in the dark. Um, and that, that, you know, that journey continues to this day in terms of more and more knowledge about trauma, more, how powerful it is and the tools that we have now to, you know, um, be more effective in treating uh, that. Have you noticed that no matter how hard you try to release attachments, heal traumas, and change your life, you still feel as if you don't belong? There is a reason and a solution for this. Join award-winning actor, comedian, and best-selling author Kyle Cease and learn how to immerse yourself in a new way of being at From Lonely to Free, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. I, I was quite taken with something that you said uh, uh, early on about that you want the the patient to feel empowered, which is something that I think can be very difficult for someone who's going in to see a therapist or a doctor for the first time. You know, it's first of all for me, and I think for many people, there's so much shame attached, and there's a and there's that you know there's sort of the 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 biases of society that you're even having to go in and do this. And so I um uh I never felt empowered. I was so downtrodden by the illnesses that I felt lucky that anyone with your stature would even see me, you know. So it was I'm the one that threw it out of balance. But I came across uh, something that I, I wondered if if you thought this sounded logical for someone who is looking for a therapist or a doctor and and kind of doesn't know how to go in. This I just love this. It says Potential clients don't care about the acronyms behind your name. They care about these three things. Do I like you? Can I trust you? Can you help me? And I was wondering if, if that, those are the kind of things that you think a potential patient should keep in mind going in to meet someone like you for the first time. Absolutely. 
No, that's that's right on on the mark, Helen. And um, yeah, I I think those are are really good guideposts. And again, it, it speaks to the you know the fact that we really uh, need to be on a on a level playing field a lot versus like you were saying kind of being intimidated by this notion that the doctor is this all powerful person mm-hmm. that right. has you know uh allowed you to see him or something along those lines uh versus recognizing that here are two people that are sitting down together and trying to craft a plan that is is something that empowers a patient not just in terms of that choice of therapist but also you know to um, identify what needs to happen in their own lives um, in order for them to heal and and feel better I you know I can't talk about this without talking about my own experience with my own psychiatrist and um, how um, how he validated many, many of these kinds of things. Um, and, um, you know, I think uh, one time I was giving him some grief about why he didn't anticipate something that <laughs> was a path that created, was problematic uh, without going into a lot of details. But he said, uh, well, I try not to get out ahead of you. I try to stay right with you. And so that kind of speaks to this idea that, you know, it's not the job of the doctor to make presumptions or to be all knowing. I've learned that it's really the job of the doctor to be right alongside the patient as opposed to being out ahead of the patient and making assumptions about what they think the patient needs i mean in some situations it's more apparent than others but to really maintain a humility and a recognition that um that um for one i think it takes a long time to really get to know somebody uh to really get to know them yeah and that we don't want to make assumptions about things that we think we know um, that we really that are not really validated. Yeah, we had it. That's so interesting and so important. And we had a uh, a journey like that together when I had said, I, I think I remember something like this happening. And and I, you may have already known where I was going and you let me discover that on my own time. And And when I said that, you said, well. If you remember it, you'll remember it. And you didn't lead me down a path. You let me find my own journey down that path. And we did eventually get there. But um, I, you made no assumptions and you let me find it on my own time. And so um, what you're saying is exactly the path we took together. You said something a little while ago about um, talking about what needs to happen in a patient's life. And it makes me think about your approach to what happens in the what needs to happen in your whole life, because you do look at the whole life, like um, exercise, eating, sleeping, uh, supplements, along with medication. And we're going to talk about medication in a minute. Um, so 
tell, uh, let's talk about the importance of that, uh, because I know a lot of people who see a psychiatrist on a regular basis, they don't have those discussions with their psychiatrist about the big picture of their life. Right, right. Absolutely. And there's a couple of a broader uh, thoughts about that, as well as some specifics. You know, one of my colleagues who's just a, a wonderful clinician and teacher, her name is Sandra Jan, is the way she pronounced it. It's spelled as if, I mean, it's, it's, it's spelled J-A-I-N as if it would be pronounced Jane, but it's pronounced Jan. She's a psychologist here in town. And along with her husband, Rakesh, uh, who's a psychiatrist, are really very compassionate, brilliant thought leaders in our field. And several years ago, they developed this whole paradigm that I know, Valerie, you've uh, heard me talk about a fair amount called Wild Five. Sleep, exercise, nutrition, mindful meditation, and social connectedness. And so, you know, those are these elements that are are key um, and to our best efforts to take care of ourselves. And none of us are perfect in, in those regards, but those are things that are certainly uh, kind of a guidepost and, and goals that are worth striving for, particularly during the pandemic. One of the things that, you know, of many, many just awful elements of this and the psychological trauma of the of the pandemic um as well as just the the actual impact of the virus um that you know we've lost the so much of the time we've lost the usual structure that we have in our lives and uh and so i found and i've talked with sandra about this and we talked early in the in the pandemic about how wild five um, would be particularly useful as as establishing as for individuals establishing their own structure when so much of the rest of their usual daily structure has been removed as a result of the pandemic. So much of what we try to do, whether it be the therapy piece, medication, wild five efforts, um, has to do with trying to establish and maintain as much resilience in our lives as possible. Well, Helen and I definitely are resilient. Helen, you and I will say to each other every once in a while, we are survivors. So we uh, understand the importance of resiliency for sure. Well, and I think, I think now with the pandemic, it's been uh, quite challenging to remain, you know, flexible enough, uh, limber enough, I guess, to get through the, you know, the restrictions of it when all these wild things that you're talking about so many have been cut off, particularly right. social you know, connectedness. Yeah. yeah, the the social, for one thing. Right. A healthy relationship is defined by the capacity of the two to play in the space of the relationship, and uh, so that that's also something that I've held dear, and it's uh, you know quite valuable because of you know, the need to to inject some playfulness and humor and lightness in the context of therapeutic relationships that can otherwise be so, you know, heavily burdened by such dark 
elements and painful elements in our lives. Well, that was about my first question that I asked Valerie. I said, does he have a sense of humor? And that's why I, I mentioned that, that we've been blessed with the gift of laughter. We we laughed. We laugh often. I uh, I one time said, I've been doing so well. You know, I, I really think I could get off my medication. And Trey, you said to me, what, are you smoking crack? I mean, we've, <laughs> we've had some good laughs over the years over very serious things I've said, you know. So talking about laughter, we'll go to the other side of that and talk about something that is often very funny, but is also very serious, and that's about medication. And we wanted to talk about both the path to the right medication and um, the fact that medication is extremely difficult to manage and is not always the right answer. And I know, Trey, you and I have talked about that. uh, Actually, just this morning, we talked about that. And I wanted to hear your thoughts on that and your comments. And Helen, of course, yours as well. You and I both have uh, Helen, you and I have a similar uh, background with medication and that we've been on a big mix and we've been stable for a long time. And that's not everybody's path. And so I really want to talk about that. Absolutely. So, you know, and Valerie, I can't speak to that without um, thinking about your video that you recorded, Valerie's story, where you talk about that diagnosis, your how you came how we came to the diagnosis of bipolar disorder, which is often something that takes quite some time uh, to get to and um, and something that you you know we have to kind of tease out in order to to get to that accurate uh, conclusion. And so that was certainly a process. And you know, when I think back and look, at the regimen of meds that have worked well for you, Barry, it was a kind of a, you know, it was a empirical trial and error kind of process in terms of finding the right meds that, um, that, uh, you know, had an effectiveness that, that significantly outweighed side effects or, you know, tolerability issues. And that's always something that, um, that uh, is critical. You know, sometimes patients will will be prescribed meds by psychiatrists or other doctors, and they'll take the medicines and put up with really unacceptable side effects because that's what the doctor told them to do. And I think, you know, in our case, Valerie, by virtue of the fact that we, you know, we had an ongoing rapport and dialogue, we could really partner together and you could share with me, you know, this one is not a workable one for us. And, you know, we need to shift gears or modify or change doses and such. It also reminds me of another book. It was from a long, long time ago, again, in my residency. Um, and back then, in the late 70s, early 80s, um, the array of psychiatric meds that we had then versus now were just paltry. You know, they were just really just. Uh, about a dozen or so, period. And um, and so, but what holds hold true then still holds true now. This book was called The Art of Prescribing Psychiatric Medication. And so, you know, it's not the same as prescribing an antibiotic. It really is a very different kind of process. And so, there's certainly the science, and we want to rely on the science as much as possible, but it also is an art as well. 
that's crafted together with the therapy, with the, you know, therapeutic relationship, if that makes sense. It does. And, uh, and you are an artist with it. I, will have to. <laughs> well, I, yeah. I had some good teachers and I, you know, continue to, to try to learn as much as possible. But, you know, when you and I spoke briefly earlier, Valerie, we also talked about sometimes, you know, it's, it's almost impossible to find the right medicine or a medicine that's well tolerated. And, um, and that we, we've got to, you know, recognize that, be humbled by that, not give up, but also um, really, um, you know, respect that we, we have to leave no stone unturned in terms of a variety of therapeutic interventions, medicine, non-medicine. And it kind of circles back around to wild five some, but, you know, I think it also speaks to an area that we want to touch on. And particularly as we're treating bipolar disorder, you know, the two non-pharmacologic cornerstones of treatment of bipolar disorder are sleep and sobriety. Right. So, you know, without sleep, and, and it's true for other psychiatric disorders, but particularly for bipolar disorder, without sleep and without sobriety, you know, you can try a, you know, a plethora of different medications but you're just going to be, you know, swimming upstream the whole time if you don't, if you can't nail those two things down. Right. And the importance of sobriety is so paramount that at one point, uh, well, you were the uh, first one to send me to substance abuse treatment. And it was the beginning of the turnaround. It, it took me five years to get sober, but you stuck with me and I stuck with it. And uh, when I tell my story, I always say that, uh, I always say my psychiatrist says sleep and sobriety are the cornerstones of recovery from bipolar disorder, um, to live in recovery with bipolar disorder, and that uh, that you were the one who sent me to treatment for uh, recover, to get into recovery. I also tell the story about it being so important that at one point you pulled out a prescription pad and wrote eight hours of sleep on a prescription pad. That it's, <laughs> that it's that important. I have a question. Um, we know that there are other treatment methods. We know, I mean, uh, that efficacy of, of, of medication for me has been a life changer and a lifesaver, I would say. But there have been some other methods that have helped me almost as much. Um, and I'm wondering, do you use or do you recommend other therapies or treatments such as uh, EMDR and DBT and, uh, you know, out, intensive outpatient programs, that kind of thing, in conjunction with talk therapy and medication? Absolutely. It's a great question, Helen. And, and Valerie, you know, I actually touched on that before we we started the podcast today. Um, absolutely. And um, that, you know, that DBT, dialectic behavioral therapy, is a you know, a very accessible kind of therapy. And you, you, you're referring to IOPs, intensive outpatient programs. It's often used as a, you know, a, a standard and effective, reliable, um, reproducible treatment uh, modality in those settings, both for um, psychiatric illness, um, you know, mood disorder, uh, uh, as well as substance abuse disorder. Um, EMDR is a whole nother world. And, um, 
that EMDR is really remarkable. I have a number of friends and uh, fellow clinicians that are really masters at using EMDR. And the more I see that, the more I learn about it. Valerie, you and I talked about that, and I referred you at one point to one of our colleagues, Sonia, who I've sent many, many patients to for EMDR. And um, it's truly remarkable. Um, and uh, I was going back and reading a bit about that, the EMDR stuff and uh, the origins of that. And that, that came about um, kind of along, you know, some of the same time, the, the late 80s, this one, this a PhD, actually, she's a PhD in English literature. Francine Shapiro was the one who kind of serendipitously discovered that eye movement had a healing effect on her dealing with her own trauma. And from that stemmed this whole science of EMDR. It's really impressive. Uh, so great question. And absolutely, absolutely. Yes, EMDR was the beginning of the real healing from my trauma. And your referral was a uh, was just one of the most powerful things to help me get into recovery with my trauma. Um, I can't believe that it is time to wrap up today's episode. It's, I feel like we could go on for another hour about, uh, you know, through this rich conversation, but, you know, Trey, just thank you so much for being with us today. I I know our listeners have gotten a lot out of this. I, I know Helen and I have, and, um, it's just like uh, icing on the cake for uh, the time that we have spent together over the years to have had this time with you and to um, for you to share your time with the two of us today. So thank you so much. Oh, it's been my pleasure. And Ellen, it's a pleasure to have met you for the first time. And uh, well, like you say, Valerie, we could talk for a long time about a lot of these things and everything we talk about kind of triggers another thought or possible direction um, that um, I'll just have to close by saying, you know, when Valerie uh, a- asked me if I was interested in doing this, you know, this kind of the podcast or presenting is not my forte. So, um, so initially I expressed a little reluctance, but um, as has been true in other situations with Valerie, uh, when Valerie tells me I really need to do something, um, it's usually the right thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> she must be obeyed. I, yeah. I, you know, I can think of a few other situations about referrals and such when I may have expressed some reluctance in the beginning, but it just speaks to Valerie, you know. When you uh, when you tell me something, I need to trust my gut and listen to what you tell me. So um, that's paid off today as well as it has at other times in the past. So thank you all very much. Well, thank uh, you. Um, and uh, yeah, good luck with what you're doing. I'm so happy you guys are doing this and I'd be happy to be helpful in any other way I might be in the future. Well, thank you. And we're going to circle back to one of your uh, one of the wild five, the importance of mindfulness as we end each episode with the mindfulness practice. And 
What is mindfulness? Well, it's an ancient practice used by many cultures. And basically, mindfulness is a mental state achieved by focusing one's awareness on the present moment while calmly acknowledging and accepting one's feelings, thoughts, and bodily sensations. Today, we're going to practice mindful driving, driving calmly. So if you are driving, you can practice this with me. And if you're not driving, you can take in the exercise so that you can practice it the next time you're behind the wheel. There's nothing like heavy traffic and impatient drivers to make stress levels soar and the worse the traffic, the worse the stress. Austin, where we all live, has some hellacious traffic resulting in some unserene drivers, but it doesn't have to be like that. In fact, sitting in traffic in a traffic jam can be an excellent opportunity to build your mindfulness muscle, increase your sense of connection to others, and I'm going to explain that, and to maintain your serenity. Um, we're going to go through the steps to a simple behind-the-wheel practice, and this is adapted from Mindful Magazine. So here we go. First, take a deep breath. That's simple yet profound. Because the moment it takes to breathe deeply allows us time for a change in perspective and a different choice. So take that deep breath. Now ask yourself what you need. It may be that in this moment you need to feel safe, at ease, or you just need some relief. Understanding what you need will bring balance. Ask yourself what you need. Give yourself what you need. If ease is what you need, you can scan your body for any tension and soften any tension or adjust your body as needed. Speak self-compassion, such as, may I be at ease, may I feel safe, may I be happy. Now look around and recognize that all the other drivers are just like you. Everyone on the road wants the same thing you do, to feel safe, have a sense of ease, and to be happy. You'll probably see a few fellow drivers who look a bit agitated. But you know what? You might also catch that driver who is singing or actually smiling. And this is going to lessen your own stress immediately. You can apply to all the drivers what you just offered to yourself, saying, May you be at ease. May you feel safe. May you be happy. Take another deep breath. In 15 seconds or less, you can turn around your mood by applying these simple tips. When you feel frustration of traffic rising, choose what you need to work on and offer that condition to others. If you need to feel safe, say, may I be safe? May you be safe? May we all be safe. Breathe in. Breathe out. Spread happiness. 
Oh, thank you, Valerie. I think that I now have the capacity to improve my mood as a driver, but I have no skills. So I'm still <laughs> in the same boat. Um, I am so reluctant to bring this episode to a close, and yet I must. Uh, it's been a revelation. I've learned things I've never known before, and many things I think that will help me become more productive in my own therapy. So thank you, Trey, for giving us your time and incredible knowledge, and Valerie, your courage and candor. Your willingness to discuss your process with all of us is a rare and precious gift. You've also laid the groundwork for our upcoming episode five, Family Relationships. Please join us as we explore the complexities of family ties and family history, the almost inestimable impact of family on mental health and on the struggle and achievement of recovery. Thank you to our listeners. As always, it's an honor that you have spent your time with us. And now I will leave you with our favorite word, onward. Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Farber, and I'm an author, teacher, psychotherapist, and shamanic practitioner. On my podcast, Healing for Your Soul, I welcome some amazing guests and introduce you to some healing techniques like earth magic, working with nature and animals, and really getting to the heart of what is keeping you stuck. I want to help you deepen your spirituality and let go of blocks that are holding you back. Let me help you in this journey called life. Part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Subscribe and follow wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode.